Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by the following. Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting Adventure Riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, the Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com www.cyclepump.com Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. You don't have to be particularly observant to notice that the word adventure has reached an all-time high in popularity. As a matter of fact, if you search on Google, the definition, which it gives you right away when you search for it, is this. An unusual and exciting, typically hazardous experience or activity. Yet the word is used everywhere. There's adventure shopping, adventure capitalists, adventure nannies, adventure yoga, adventure underwear. Oh yeah, adventure underwear. I don't know, am I the last one to hear about all these things? What is an adventure nanny? In any case, that search on Google for adventure returns 785 million results. So when we say adventure motorcycle, what are we really saying? And furthermore, when we want to purchase an adventure motorcycle, what are we talking about and how do you define it? And what should we be looking for when we're doing it? Today, we're going to gather some expert opinions, tips, and thoughts that should help you on your next hunt for an adventure motorcycle. And at least today, we're going to knock off one of those 785 million results. Rome wasn't built in a day. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tack. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Russ. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hi, this is Zenith Irfan in Pakistan, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. I remember hearing someone talk one time about the way stores stack things up on shelves and in aisles and how there's something about the human psyche that when we walk down these aisles and we see all these items stacked neatly along the shelves that we're driven to buy them even though we may already own one. In fact, a Harvard paper from 2011 called Please Touch the Merchandise talks about the sales power of allowing the consumer to touch and feel the merchandise and how it equated to higher sales. 
This paper from Harvard went on to talk about experiments where they heated or cooled the items for the shopper to hold and how that heating and cooling created a 43% increase in sales. Now, I only bring this up to you because the next time you're shopping for an adventure bike, you will be bombarded with all types of tactile sensations, from engine vibrations to smooth plastics and cool metal surfaces. And over the next hour or so, we're going to try and give you some tips and thoughts that may help you overcome that innate desire to purchase the first bike you come across that has heated grips. Well, first up today, we've got Grant Johnson, whom you should know from Horizons Unlimited. Grant was, a long time ago, a motorcycle dealer. I mean, he had a dealership. He and Susan did their own trip around the world. And ever since the internet came online, they've been operating Horizons Unlimited, which means that every day Grant talks about motorcycles, travel, adventure motorcycles. And he's got some really good tips on what to look for when you're considering buying a new adventure bike. I spoke with Grant from his home and his office in British Columbia, Canada. Well, we've got a lot to cover today, so we may as well jump in with both feet. Grant, welcome back. Thanks, Jim. It's good to be back. We're talking about choosing an adventure bike. Somebody who's uh, either maybe maybe they've been away from it for you know ten to twenty years and they're just getting back to riding itself, or maybe they saw you know that beautiful that iconic adventure bike that buzzed by on the road with the big knobby tires and the bags on it and the the person looking rough and rugged and thought that is cool. I want one of those. However, you come around to it if you're deciding to look at adventure bikes and considering buying one. So right off the bat, what are the first things that we should be considering? You know, when you're, there's so many choices out there, so many bikes available, and there's so much gear available, and there's so much hype about what we should be riding. What are the first things we should be considering looking at an adventure bike? I think the most important thing right up front is to, to decide what is it you're actually going to do with the bike. It's, it's easy to say, oh, adventure bike, this is all very cool, and it's very in, and it reminds me a lot of cruisers once upon a time when they were new and the thing to have everybody had to go out and buy the right bike and the right gear and the right accessories and you know it's the same thing a little bit with adventure bikes so we have to be careful that we're not buying an adventure bike because it's cool but because it's going to do what we want to do with it it's flexible there's a lot of bikes out there there's a lot of very specialized bikes or just about anything you can imagine when i started riding there were, you bought basically a big bike or a little bike, whatever you could afford, and you made it do whatever you wanted, and you did everything with it, with that same bike. Um, I had my 250 Ducati. It was a motocross bike. It was a flat tracker. It was my street bike. I took rode it to school, and I got it because the guy tried road racing, the, the original owner, and decided it wasn't quite a good enough road racer. So, And that was one bike. Today, our bikes are so much more specialized that it's important to actually pick one that's going to do the job you want it to do because if you get the wrong bike sometimes when you got a bike that's specialized in one area it's really bad somewhere else so trying to get the right kind of bike is is critical to decide what you want to do with it it's kind of a sliding scale isn't it between you know the gnarly off-road bike and the bike that feels really good on the highway and yet it's like they're at opposite ends of the scale and you're sliding the slider back and forth and they're not going to meet no they aren't um Having said that, of course, any bike can do most things adequately. And I think where you have to be very careful is what is adequate for you may not be adequate for somebody else. A bike that's really good on the highway, two up, loaded with luggage, cruising down the interstate, 
may not be the best bike for some gnarly back roads. So you have to decide what you want. Um, a really good example, I think, is the 1200 BMW GS versus the KTM equivalent. The KTM, I think, is a better off-road bike and a not quite as good touring highway cruising down the road bike, whereas the BMW, better on the highway, still good off-road, but not as good as the KTM. So you, which way do you lean? Are you 98% highway or 50-50, 60-40? You've got to make that decision, and, and you have to be honest with yourself because I think we all dream about doing more off-road than we will actually do. And if you're spending um, most of your time riding to work, touring with the wife in the back, cruising down the highway, and three times a year you get to go out for the weekend with your buddies and on some adventure ride in the woods, you don't really need a, a bike that's leaning hard towards the off-road end of the spectrum. You can take your more street bike, like the Chalp Hunter GS, and put a decent set of tires on it, and they're really good off-road. Not quite as good as a KTM maybe, but good enough. And I think that's important. What's good enough for you in the areas that you use not so much? The the adventure bike, I mean, adventure is one of those words, it's used so much nowadays. I mean, they've, they've got, uh, you know, uh, adventure travel right on through to adventure shopping. There, there's so many things that are adventure now. But as far as the adventure bike goes, would it be fair to say an adventure bike is a bike that you want to be able to ride some distances with? And then if you see some dirt somewhere or some sort of uh, place where, you know, maybe it's, a, maybe it's even a, a track that you can go off of the beaten path with, would that be fair? that sort of sum up what an adventure bike should be? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, to me, um, an adventure bike is something that you can take pretty much anywhere you want to go within sensible reason. It's primarily a highway road bike. It's primarily a street bike. It's designed to be able to carry a reasonable load of luggage, take you as far as you want to go in reasonable comfort. Yet it's still good enough off-road to take you down a gravel track, down a even a single track with reasonable care and take your time. You're never going to go as quick as you would on a proper dirt bike or even a proper dual sport bike, but it'll get you there. And I think that's the really important thing. It will get you there. That's the point. And really, we got to balance what we need for what we're the riding style. And you mentioned, you know, we got to be honest about where we're riding, how much dirt we're doing versus how much road, uh, what we want, what we think looks cool, what actually works in those areas and what's available. And there is a lot available. Yeah, the range of available bikes now is growing by leaps and bounds. When Susan and I set off on our trip around the world in 1987, all there was was either the XT500 Yamaha single, which really wasn't going to cut it for two up long distance, or the R80 GS BMW. There really wasn't much else. And we chose the R80 GS, and it worked well for us, but we were two up. If I was solo, I would have taken the XT500. Right, and that, that, that's the other consideration that you mentioned earlier, two up or solo, because that's going to make a, a huge difference right there. I mean, when you're looking at the array of bikes out there, two up or solo is going to narrow the field for you a lot. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's one of the things I spend a lot of time trying to convince people is that you don't need the 1200 GS if you're going to go to South America for the winter by yourself. A 650 single will do a much better job for you. Most of us tend to overbuy. Most of us tend to buy a bigger, fancier, cooler, sexier bike than we really need because it's cool. 
Uh, and that's fine and too, everybody though, right? Says you need it. Well, it, it's it's fine as long as you understand that. As long as you're saying, I'm buying this because it's cool and I love it and I want it. That's great. But don't buy it because everybody says you got to have it because you probably don't. Well, we know this because of all the people that are riding around on unconventional so-called adventure bikes. Oh, the range of bikes that people are riding is absolutely amazing. Like Doug Watke around the world on an Indian or, or a rigid chopper. Come on. I mean, that's <laughs> that's not sane. But nobody ever said Doug was sane. And that, I mean that in a nice way. Uh, people have ridden around the world on 50cc scooters. People have ridden around the world on Harley Electroglides. Peter and Kay um, from Australia did 193 countries on a box stock. I think it was a 93 or something Harley Electroglide. You can do it on anything. I used to ride my R100 SBMW on gravel roads quite happily. It was a street bike. It was a sport bike with a bikini fairing and small handlebars. And it's fine, depending on what you do and how you do it. Uh, so unconventional, yeah. Sometimes people choose unconventional because it is unconventional. That's the point. Uh, a conventional bike is almost too easy. Why not do it on something interesting? There's a couple riding around South America right now on a 67 BSA 650. Personally, I think they're nuts, but hey, go good for them. Go for it. Have fun. (laughs) (laughs) But it drives home the point, doesn't it? That you don't need necessarily that bike that a lot of people will tote as the adventure bike, the ultimate adventure bike. No. And and the, the ultimate adventure bike is very much in the eye of the beholder. It depends on what you want, what you want to do. I mean, I know lots of guys who are out there on 650 singles, 450 singles, and think that is the ultimate adventure bike. It's perfect for them and for what they're doing and the kind of riding they're doing. A 1200 GS or a 1190 KTM or whatever is just plain stupid on the road of bones in Siberia. But pick the bike for the job and pick what works for you and pick what you like. And I think that's that's probably the most important thing to understand is no matter what everybody says about whether it's the best bike or the perfect bike or the ultimate bike, if you don't like it, you don't like it and you'll never like it. And no matter what it does, you'll hate it. Um, if the bike breaks once, it's the biggest piece of garbage you've ever seen. Whereas if you've got a bike that you love and it breaks 25 times, you still love it. And that's important. If you don't like it and take care of it and look after it and, and get emotionally connected to it, it's just a piece of garbage machinery and you're going to beat it to death and it's going to be poor. It's not going to work for you and you're going to hate it. So why would you do that? The point of going for a ride is to become one with the motorcycle on the trip and to enjoy that whole, I'm off my bike and I'm riding and I'm feeling good about it. So you've got to like your bike. I just talked to somebody a couple of weeks ago who was exactly that. He was sort of complaining about the fact the bike wasn't all that reliable. He's replaced a lot of parts on it. But when I said, well, so what bike would you take the next one? He said, well, I think I'll take this one because I love to ride it. You know, yes. and he, yes. he loves the bike. And he said for him, he has to get up in the morning and want to ride. And he says, this bike, I want to ride it. Yeah, it's maybe it hasn't been so reliable for me, but I love to ride it. There you go. That's what it's all about. That's exactly what I'm saying. What about used versus new? How do you feel about that? I mean, obviously cost is, I mean, everybody has to consider how much money they have to spend, obviously. Yeah, well, there's two sides to the, the if you look at used versus new for cost, because you could always just get a size or two smaller bike and get a new one if that's your concern. Um, I think a reasonably new bike is a very good idea for most people. If you're very mechanically competent and like your friend and it breaks a lot, but you're okay to fix it, 
then an older used bike is fine. People are still big fans of the old, old R80 GS like mine. And I know a guy who spent $10,000 rebuilding one after he spent $7,000 to buy it, which is a ridiculous price for a bike that old, but that's what they go for. So he's got a very expensive motorcycle. It's 30 years old. He could have had a new bike for the same money, but he loves the old bike. And he's comfortable with it. He's competent. He can fix it. He can repair it. He can look after it. Um, That's his choice. But for most people who aren't really mechanically inclined and aren't wanting to spend a lot of time fixing the bike, but they'd rather spend most of their time riding it, um, new or very close to new, I think, is a good idea. Definitely recommended. One, if you're looking for used, I've talked to several people now who've bought the bikes from other travelers. The thing I keep hearing from is that, oh, they were very candid about the condition of the bike, which mm-hmm. might be an asset. You know, you go on to, for instance, go into your forum at Horizons Unlimited and post that you're looking for a bike or look at the bikes for sale that people have ridden them to certain locations and they and they don't want to ride any further and they'd like to sell the bike there. That's a good option probably because you're dealing with a, sort of a kindred spirit. Yeah, that, that works very well. There's actually a guy on there right now who's in Europe. Um, I think he's an American, if I remember rightly. He's got an American registered V-Strom for sale at a very good price in Europe, available right now. If you're an American, fly over there, buy the bike from him, and go ride. He's been riding it, and he's had a great time with it. You can do that, but what you have to really watch when you're buying a bike that's used, or well, buying any bike in another country, is registration. You can't bring it, that bike home if you're from a different country. You may be able to get it transferred, but that can be difficult. Basically, if you're, for instance, an American, buy an American bike, and then registration is no big deal. If you're Canadian, buy a Canadian bike. Even if it's in Timbuktu, it doesn't matter. If it's a Canadian bike, you can deal with the registration because that's your home country. Um, same thing for any European. Germans, buy a German registered bike. It's easiest to deal with the registration and paperwork. And remember, when you bring it home, some countries are very, very difficult to bring foreign registered bikes in. You may be able to get it registered in another country, but bringing a German bike to Canada, for instance, can be extraordinarily difficult and expensive. So you've got to make sure you understand import rules and regulations if you're going to do that. Having said that, you can always sell it on to somebody else. (laughs) Of course, yeah. You just ride at your distance and then put it back up for sale. Yep, keep selling it. I thought I'd mention here dealer pricing because I recently read an article about um, how uh, dealers, they, at least in North America, they they buy their bikes from the manufacturer and they can really they can sell them at whatever price they want. So quite often you'll find some fairly large price differences from one dealer to the next on the exact same bike, and it may be just down the road. So it's worthwhile shopping around a bit. Yeah, always shop around for sure. Um, but don't think that you're going to get massive discounts on bikes because the average dealer makes at most 10% on the bike, which is a shocking number. Yeah, I was reading that. It's really surprising. And, and, and what I was reading in that same article was that they count on their uh, accessory sales and yep. their repairs and, and, and maintenance work to sort of even, up, even things up. It's sort of like you need all of them to really make a living at it. Yeah. The amount of money a de- the average dealer makes, by the time he pays his salesman, pays for the building the bike is sitting on, pays for the floor plan, uh, financing, and all the rest of it, he's making peanuts on the bike. But what he does get, if he does a good job, is he's got a customer who's going to come back and buy some goodies and helmet and jackets and maintenance and service and all kinds of stuff over the years. Um, the actual bike sale, there's not a lot of room for them. So give them a break. It's, it's not like in cars where you can get a fairly substantial discount. 
So when we're looking at the lineup of adventure bikes out there, there's dual sport and there is adventure bikes. What's the difference between a dual sport and an adventure bike? This is where things are a little blurry because there's lots of bikes that are specifically labeled as dual sport, like the DR650 Suzuki, which all you got to do is blink and it's an adventure bike because you're taking it off on some big trip. Uh, it depends to a large extent on what, how you organize it. But the, I think what you're trying to say or are trying to ask is what's the technical definition? And that's very blurry. But to me, a dual sport bike is something that is designed to do a significant amount of off-road. And road, yes, it's street legal and it's roadable, but it's, it's important that it do off-road. Whereas an adventure bike, it's less important that it do off-road well it's more important that it be a good all-round, do-everything, primarily street use, but it's it'll survive off-road. I think that's the real difference to me. And, and the thing is with the adventure bike thing is, is sort of morphing as we go along. I mean, even some, with some of the manufacturers, I've seen some bikes be almost rebranded as an adventure bike. And some <laughs> others, like you said, the, the DR650 that, that probably should be. But as we already said, any bike can be an adventure bike. Any bike can take sure. you on an adventure. It doesn't have to be that. But the adventure bike sort of refers to a bike that's set up for long distance travel with a long suspension travel. So it can do some reasonable off-road stuff and you can put... A, you know, bags, et cetera, on it. That's basically what we're talking about when we refer to a new adventure bike. Yeah, I think so. Um, the, the range of them, you get things like the Ducati adventure bike is a long, long way from a KTM 1190 or even a, a V-Strom. There's, there's big differences in what the bikes are capable of. And again, it comes down to what is it you want? Do you, there's a lot of riders now that are coming away from sport bikes and even away from cruisers and coming into adventure bikes, not because it's an adventure bike, but because it's got a good riding position. It's not going to kill your back. You're not going to break your wrist and you're not going to be hard on your neck. And you're going to have a nice, comfortable riding position with your weight on your feet. So that, let me put it this way. The problem with a cruiser is you're sitting back and all the weight is on your butt. So when you hit a bump, it jars your, your spine. On an adventure bike, the weight can be taken off your spine so that you can take the weight on your feet because your feet are underneath your butt. And that's really important. That means you can ride longer, longer distances, more comfortably. And when there's a big bump, you can take the weight and it's easier on your body to ride in that position. Um, sports bikes, you're leaning far too far forward. It's hard on your neck. It's hard on your wrists. It's hard on your back. So adventure bikes are striking that happy medium of comfort with good standard riding position. And that's the funny thing is that word standard I just used because once upon a time, the standard motorcycle was all there was. And guess what? That was the adventure bike riding position. We've gone back since, since the sixties, we've gone back all the way to that 1960s riding position. It's taken us a long time to do it, but it's the standard riding position. That's a very good point. Yeah. And it works. Okay, so we're looking at the what we're calling adventure bikes, or what the I guess really what the manufacturers are marketing as adventure bikes. Now, one thing is once we you add in long suspension travel, obviously the bike sits higher. We've got engines that are taller now, overhead camshafts. That makes the frame a little bit taller. And now we've, we're going to talk about some things that may be limiting factors, may not, but maybe limiting factors or at least factors you need to consider. One would be seat height. Yeah, that's, that can be a problem. I saw an article recently which actually kind of annoyed me 
because the the concept was the I think I can't remember exactly what they said, but if you can't get both your feet flat on the ground, the bike is too high for you. I'm sorry, that's just plain flat wrong. It's nice to get both your feet flat on the ground, but you absolutely don't need to. It's not necessary, but you do need to be able to ride a little better. Um, a really good example is a woman I know who's maybe five feet, and I do mean maybe five feet, riding an S650 GS, uh, had it lowered to the absolute bottom. I mean, the thing was about three inches off the ground. She got both feet flat in the ground. Terrific. Went off and did a big trip around Europe with her husband, raised the bike back up. Went up, rode around some more, did some more riding, raised it back up some more. So she's now got ground clearance, so it isn't always hitting on the topes in Mexico, and she can actually lean it over the corner, and she's got a lot more ground clearance. But there's no way on earth she can get both feet flat on the ground. She can just barely tiptoe with both feet. But she's got the experience now to where she can do that. So lowering is something that you do as a beginner and when you have to, but don't lower it until you need to. And as soon as you can, as soon as you feel comfortable, raise it back up. Because the obviously the, the downside is you're giving up that ground clearance that you wanted with an adventure bike to begin with. Oh, yeah. Um, and not just that you want the ground clearance, because if you're not riding it off-road, it's not a big deal. But uh, when you lower a bike that much, you're messing with the suspension and you're messing with the original design. And the bike just is not going to handle as well as it should. It's very important that when you lower a bike, you lower the front end, back end equally. If you lower one more than the other, you're setting yourself up for all kinds of nasty handling issues that you really don't want to get into. So that's something to really be careful about. Uh, but you need to get it back up as high as you can, as soon as you can, because the ground clearance in a corner, just leaning it over. You're going to start dragging your big, fat, wide saddlebags really quickly. And that's not something you want to do. What about fuel economy? I mean, you think that's a consideration? Sure, it's a consideration. Fuel economy is becoming more important. I think with the price of fuel in a lot of parts of the world, it's so high that it matters. And when you see bikes like the F650 GS BMW turning in numbers like 70 miles to the imperial gallon or 80 miles to the imperial gallon, wow, that's really serious. When I look at my 1200 GS that gets 45, maybe, hmm. there's a big difference there in what it's going to cost you for just to run it on a regular basis. So yeah, fuel economy matters. And modern bikes are getting better and better and better at it. And we all complain about the electronics and the complexities and all the rest of it. But without all that electronics and complexity, we would have two big issues. One, our fuel economy wouldn't be anywhere near what it is. And two, the emissions would be o over the moon. So we're stuck. The, uh, there's a lot of carbureted bikes that are no longer being made at all because they can't meet emissions. And there's a lot of them, especially in Europe, there's very, very few carbureted bikes left in Europe because of emissions requirements. And it's coming here as well to North America. Fuel economy also is going to make a difference in the distance you're going to get out of your tank. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's a big difference. Um, and I think people tend to think that they have to have a, a giant fuel tank, but if you've got an S650, for instance, with 80 miles to the gallon, hey, maybe you don't need it. Um, I've got a 1200 GS Avenger. It's got 33 liters. I don't even come close to needing the full tank, although I confess I like it. It's handy to have, and I don't have. I gas up when I want to, not because I have to. Uh, when we rode around the world, we had a 40-liter fuel tank. We used that full capacity exactly once, and that was it. Uh, we could have just as easily have carried um, a two-gallon jerry can, and it would have been fine. 
or even you can get plastic uh, Coke bottles and fill them up with fuel and carry them along. You don't need the giant fuel tank. You do need decent economy. It does come in handy. I hear a lot of people say that over and over again, that they, you know, they had a great big tank and they, they went around the world and they found out they used it so little. They could have easily got by without it. And, and, and I've heard people say before, it wasn't worth the money to them, at least for their style of riding, for those few times that they would have had to have carry extra fuel with them. Yeah. Now, there's very few people who will say it's worth $2,000 or $1,500 to have that big tank once they've had it. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it and you, you, when you're starting out, you think, ooh, got to have a big tank to, because the world's remote. Well, no. The, the important thing to understand is you're on a road. The road is, goes from town to town to town to town. There's people that drive that road. They need gas too. So your average car's fuel range is all you need on a motorcycle. That's enough because there's always gas at the other end of the road. So you would say that the tank size on the bike is not a consideration then really? I wouldn't say it's not a consideration. Um, there are some bikes out there that have silly small fuel tanks, um, but I don't think any of them are being marketed as, the, as adventure bikes either. So you, if you're looking at some dual sport bikes or some more off-road bikes, yes, some of them have very small fuel tanks. Uh, the DR650 is a classic example. I forget what the size is, but it's very small with very poor range. So you can buy a bigger tank for it, but they're not silly money either. They're only a few hundred dollars. Whereas for some of the big bikes, like the 650 or 1200 BMWs, if you want a big fuel tank, you're talking major money, $1,500 $2,000. That's not worth it. $300 for 50% increase in fuel tank size on a DR650 or similar bike? Yeah, sure, go for it. What about the overall weight of the bike? Should that be a consideration when we're looking? Always, 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 always. Somebody once said, uh, Austin Vince once said, you will never, ever wish on a big trip that your bike was bigger or heavier. The only time I would think that it would, and it always pops into my mind, is, you know, when you're on the highway and you get the buffeting, that heavier bike sure feels a lot nicer. Well, I think you might be surprised. (laughs) A, A smaller, lighter bike also has a whole lot less wind area it doesn't get blasted it's not a bit as big a barn door mm. to get knocked about so a smaller bike actually doesn't necessarily get knocked around that much more it's more surface area that knocks it and you're on a bike if the wind hits it that the bike's going to lean and wheel's going to turn you're going to go somewhere else it's not a big difference i don't think there is a difference but not huge Okay, so when we're looking at weight, what should we consider? Is there, is there a maximum weight that we should be looking at saying, oh, that bike's just going to be too heavy for an adventure bike? Or how do we decide how light we need to go? It's up to you and your physical size and what you can handle and your experience. If you're a very experienced rider, you've been riding for a long, long time, you've ridden lots of bikes and you've got hundreds of thousands, millions of miles under your belt, I'm sure you can handle a big, heavy bike much better than somebody who's been riding for a year. Um, there's, it's never going to be light enough. Every motorcycle out there is too darn heavy. That's a fact of life. Get used to it. Um, you always want lighter. You always want smaller. You want, always want easier to handle. But at the same time, if you're comfortable on the bigger bike and it's cruising down the highway the way you like it and you're 98% highway, Bigger and heavier is not a problem. It's actually kind of nice. It's a little more luxurious. It's probably got a little bit more moving around room. It may even have better suspension. It's generally more comfortable. And that's great on the highway. You know, I ride a 1200 GS and I'm happy with it on the highway. It works very well. Uh, 
off-road, it's not so good. Uh, I was out uh, organizing the trails for the hum that's coming up next year here in British Columbia and fell over. And it took two of us to pick it up. It just fell over in a bad position, in a bad way. And the two of us were just busting a gut to pick it up. If I had been solo, it'd still be there. I couldn't have picked it up. There's no way. I've always so, thought that the heavy adventure bikes now should come with a couple of hydraulic arms to help ride itself. Yeah, one of the things we were talking about actually was just exactly that. Would it come along work here? How about a how about a winch? Um, Linda Boothurston Bick is a name that people should know. She's well into her sixties, if not seventies now, probably seventies now. Uh, she rides a DR three fifty, I think. I remember rightly. Um, and she's got an unusual thing attached to the side of it. It's a piece of pipe. You look at it, what's that for? And then she reaches over and pulls out the extension to the piece of pipe. She's now got a six-foot-long lever to pick up the bike. Anytime it falls over on either side, doesn't matter. She pulls out her extension, picks it up without even sweating. And she weighs maybe 100 pounds. Very nice. Very nice indeed. <laughs> so that's thinking outside the box to make a bike that's maybe a little too big and heavy for her, but she likes it and it works for her and what she wants to do. She's making it work for her by doing something different. And that's okay. I think that's a great idea. So it's good to consider the overall weight when we're looking at the bikes. And I guess where weight might be a deciding factor is if you're looking at a couple of models that you, you know, that you really like that sort of suit what you're after, you might want to consider the weight in there as one of your deciding factors. Sure. Weight, I think weight is important. Fuel economy matters. Price matters. Reliability matters. And above all else, what matters the most is, does it feel good? Do you like it? You want to live with this thing for a few years. Wow. You said reliability. Now, how does one measure reliability? <laughs> That's your personal opinion on whether this bike is considered to be reliable or not. <laughs> but I mean, you could, you could scan the forums, right? I mean, you could look around and see what a general consensus is. I know you're going to, I mean, boy, you could go forever <laughs> doing oh, that. Oh, yes. <laughs> but I mean, you may get a general consensus, you know, that, that one kind of a bike might be, uh, I don't know, a little bit more difficult to do maintenance on than another bike. One bike might be bad for staters where the other one, you know, is bad for whatever. So certain bikes will have certain nuances that you might be able to pick up through scanning the forms. Sure. But what you're going to find, every single motorcycle out there has bad points. They all have bad points. And the number one thing is that people complain about their bikes if they got a problem. They don't rave about them when they don't have a problem. You only hear the bad always about everything. And that's just a fact of life. Um, even the most reliable bikes out there, like the, the Honda Africa Twin, considered to be an amazingly reliable bike. Well, they have a couple of Achilles heels. One of them is the voltage regulator, and I forget the other one. I think it was a water pump, if I remember rightly. But um, yeah, and everybody knows it, and everybody just automatically replaces those items, and that's it. It's normal. Oh, I know. Africa Twin was uh, fuel pump. Hmm. Replace the fuel pump. Okay, fine. We know that. We accept that, and the rest of the bike is great. This, I'm sorry, I'm talking about the old Africa Twin. Let's just be careful here. <laughs> Not the new Africa Twin. We don't know what's wrong with the new Africa Twin. And there will be something. It's, it's normal. That's just a fact of life. The important thing is to understand what are the weak points. Can you prepare for it by replacing it with an improved component in advance? Or do you carry a spare? Or maybe you carry an oil an O-ring. Um, and that fixes it. Or you learn to watch for the little telltale drip of oil out of the rear drive on a 1200. There's 
things that you have to decide. What can you live with? What can't you live with? What's a problem? And how much of a problem is it for you and what you're doing? But it still comes back to they're all pretty good. Modern motorcycles are so reliable today. It's ridiculous compared to the 60s. I mean, we, we thought nothing of you know, 4,000 miles and the motor's blowing up. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, you did pretty good then, didn't you? <laughs> you know, that's, are you crazy? A friend of mine had a Triumph 650, which never broke. It was always wonderfully reliable. It was amazing and fantastic. What was not mentioned was he was a full-time motorcycle mechanic, and Saturday night he spent the entire night going over the bike, prepping it for the Sunday ride so it wouldn't break. <laughs> that was normal, and we accepted that, and that was fine. But nowadays but, that's completely unacceptable. Totally unacceptable. It's a whole different ballgame. Um, so today, cars cars are wonderfully reliable. I mean, cars just almost don't break. Uh, motorcycles almost don't break compared to what it could have been. So I think we have to accept that, yes, it's a mechanical thing. And at some point, yes, it's going to fail. Deal with it. It's, I guess in the past, you were you were an enthusiast and sort of backyard mechanic, at least. Whereas nowadays, yeah, you, you can to, be an operator. Yeah. Yeah, the... Way back when, <laughs> I gotta, I'm dating myself so badly, if you didn't have some mechanical skills or a rich daddy, you didn't ride. It was as simple as that. Um, everything You had to do everything yourself, and it was normal to fettle the bike, tweak things, adjust this, adjust that, um, do regular rebuilds and repairs. and That was kind of the norm. Today, there's an awful lot of people out there. I know one guy who says, I don't even carry a toolkit. I wouldn't know what to do with it if I had it. That's a different scale of riding. Once upon a time, he wouldn't be able to ride a 1960s motorcycle, but he could certainly ride something modern today and ride it from service interval to service interval and take it into the dealer and probably be just fine. So we have to understand, I think, that modern motorcycles are very good overall generally. They all have their foibles and little things. Pick one you like and ride it. And if it's got a flaw, hey, deal with it when it breaks. That's just the way it is. Well, then should mechanical simplicity or complexity be part of our consideration when we're buying the bike? And there are some bikes out there that are sort of a, a, a still a throwback. You know, the, I'll mention the KLR650 still has the, the carburetor on it. A lot of people yep. like it because of that. There's other bikes that have a load of electronics. Um, all your, your fancier, newer, bigger uh, um, adventure bikes have loads of computers on them. Should that be consideration when we're looking at this? I think it's something you want to think about, um, and a lot of it is personal preference and personal feeling. Um, the, there's negatives and positives to that simplicity as well. Good story. Um, KLR650, since you brought it up, has a carburetor. This is great until you get to about 14,000 feet in Bolivia, and the thing can't get out of its own way and literally can barely move. It's so bad. So I had a guy write me and says, I'm in Bolivia, I'm at 14,000 feet, and it's an absolute dog. What happened? There's nothing wrong with it that I can tell. And he said, well, you've got to change your jetting. And I told him what to do, and he changed his jets. He, somebody had said, here, you need to carry this, and gave him the appropriate jets to change, and he changed them. And that was great. He said, it runs terrific, fantastic. A week later, he wrote back and said, my bike's in the shop, and the, the mechanic says the engine's melted. Because he went down. What? He went down in altitude. All of a sudden, he's super lean. The engine got super hot, and he melted it, melted the piston, literally. You have to do that. Yes, it's simple, but you have to make the mechanical changes to make it work. And if you don't understand, and he clearly didn't understand, even though I spent a fair amount of time, and I told him to change the jets when he went down, 
Um, this, these, this jetting that I gave him was for altitude, not for sea level. He didn't pay attention, and it cost him a fortune. So he had to put a new engine in it. Complete white write-up. Whereas if it was fuel-injected? You don't even think about it. You just ride it. And I rode in Bolivia at high altitude on my R80GS with carburetors with Max, which will be forever famous, on an LR1100GS. And he was just jetting away from me without – he said, I feel fine. Works perfectly. <laughs> I don't notice any difference. It's not quite as fast as it was, but basically it's fine. And mine was an absolute pig. 60 miles an hour was top speed. That was all I could do without changing the jets. So, yes, mechanical simplicity has its pluses, and trust me, it has its minuses. Ask the guy who had to adjust his points at 30 below zero in Utah on his car when it died because the points were dirty. Mm. And I no know one, all about that. <laughs> no, no one seems to pine the loss of points. No, they certainly don't. But I remember when we went from um, points to electronic ignition, there were actually kits you could buy to return that motorcycle to points. Right. Yeah. But today we think that's insane. And the same thing is with electronic fuel injection. Yes, it's more complicated, but guess what? Electronics are actually pretty reliable. And that fuel injection system is so simple, there's not much to it. They don't fail very often. And they do so much for you as far as they adjust for altitude automatically. They adjust for temperature differences automatically, humidity differences automatically. And you can get 25 to 50% better fuel mileage with fuel injection than you can with a carburetor. There's pluses and minuses to the t- complexity. And it's interesting how we get used to a certain technology. You said that when we moved away from points and went to uh, electronic ignition, that was a horrible thing when it happened. Now it's the norm. Now no one really talks about it anymore. They consider that to be a reliable thing. Now they focus on uh, the other computers that are on the bike. So it's interesting, our, our perception of... Um, of uh, complexity of or of technology, really, but well, it's a that, that's a lot of things. I just want to make a comment on that because we, as a species, we tend to um, be more afraid of the things we don't understand and less afraid of the things we do understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, it's the same thing goes for travel. We live in a town, and we think it's perfectly safe. And yet, it's on a watch list for dangerous things going happening. Um, you know, take any major city in the world. There's all kinds of murders going on, but we're used to it, and we don't notice it. We don't pay any attention to it, and we're used to this town, so we feel safe. And yet, somewhere else, because it's been talked about, seems like it's more dangerous. Um, a classic example is uh, if you live in Little Rock, Arkansas, it's actually safer to move to Mexico City because there's less mur- murders per capita in Mexico City than there is in Little Rock. Wow. What? <laughs> but it's true. So we tend to be more afraid of what we don't understand than what we do understand. We, we exaggerate the difference. What about dealer service? Is that important if a dealer is near us? Is it okay to, to go and buy? Maybe there's a dealer, you know, 200 kilometers or 150 miles from us. Is it, it, would it make sense to buy from them just because it's a bike you like and, and not get one from a dealer that's close to you? If you had a choice of getting the bike you like at a dealer close to you, that's clearly the, the better way to go. I wouldn't buy from a, a but I wouldn't buy bike A from a dealer far away because it was 100 bucks cheaper than the dealer who's close to me. That would be just plain cutting off your nose to spite your face. Mm-hmm. I think that's silly. 
Uh, I think it's really important to support your local dealer. I think it's important to make sure that you um, do what you can to give them your business rather than spend most of your money on the internet. Um, if your dealer goes away, you're going to be a very unhappy bunny. So the dealer needs support. And speaking as a former dealer a long, long time ago, it's a really tough business. There's a standing joke in the motorcycle business that's, you know how to turn $2 million into $1 million? Start a motorcycle shop. <laughs> you know, and you bringing that up reminds me of, you know, just reiterating this point. I think I've said it before about please don't go to your local dealer to try something on and then go buy it on the internet. I mean, if you're going to a dealer to try something just to buy it on the internet, you're practically stealing. I think you are stealing from them. Yeah, I would agree. That's, I mean, he's put the effort and the money to put that thing on the shelf so that you can look at it, put it on, try it, make sure it's right. And their expert salespeople, hopefully expert salespeople, will help you make sure you've got the right fit, the right one, He'll bend over backwards to look after you, and then you go buy it on the internet? Come on. That's just not reasonable. And you're not going to save enough to matter anyway. But also, when we're talking about dealers, if you're doing any sort of long trips, you want to think about, are there dealers in the areas that you're traveling through? Yeah. Um, this is a constant problem, depending on where you're, where you're going, whether there is your appropriate dealer. Getting a BMW or a KTM or a Ducati dealer in South America isn't easy. Uh, the Japanese bikes, there's a lot more dealers. Um, but even then, if you've got a 1,200cc Honda, whatever, trust me, in South America, um, small towns, nobody owns one. The, even if there is a dealer, he sure doesn't work on those kind of bikes. Um, he's, he's selling 125s, 175 dual sport bikes as the norm. Um, your big, expensive bike, there probably isn't anything. But on the other hand, the dealer can order and get and you can always um, get on the internet, <clears throat> I hate to say it, but you can get on the internet, uh, contact your favorite dealer, and have them ship the parts in from outside. That's all doable. And one of the things we have to keep remembering is that with um, that modern technology and complexity comes, you can get parts shipped to just about anywhere in the world in a week. FedEx, UPS, DHL, they'll ship into anywhere very, very quickly. So you want to make sure that your local dealer knows you and likes you so you can phone them and say, hey, I need this. And he says, OK, I got your credit card on file. I'll send it out this afternoon or I'll get it tomorrow and send it out right away. How do you want it sent and where do you want it get sent? What about service intervals? Should that be a consideration for buying bikes? No, I don't think so. Um, I think it's a very fine point. It's very detailed. The manufacturer has set service intervals to be appropriate for the bike. And yes, if you can save money on your service intervals, uh, they're a little farther, they're a little less. Yeah, that might be a, a final deciding factor, maybe. But more important is back to, do you like it? Um, and you, service intervals can be deceptive because a service interval may be 6,000, 8,000, 12,000, whatever, it doesn't matter. But how much is that service? You could have a lot more off, more frequent service intervals doing smaller stuff, and they're quite inexpensive to do because the bike's easy to work on and very simple. Or you could have a long service interval, but when it comes, boy, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. You need to add that number up. It's not how often, it's how much over the first 50,000 or 100,000 miles. 
You mentioned a little while ago about small displacement bikes. We talked a little bit about that. I'd like to look at the upside and the downside of traveling with a small displacement bike. What's the upside? The upside, it's dirt cheap. It's easy to maintain. It's cheap to maintain. Tires, gas, everything for it is cheap. Did I mention it was cheap? Um, <laughs> Carnets are cheap. Shipping the bike, flying the bike is cheap. Um, if you're going to do a big trip and you're short on money, take a small bike. Wow. They're dirt cheap. You're really adding it up there. I just that That's a lot. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that. Shipping it and everything, that it all makes a difference, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. you got a 1200 GS and it's going to be in a giant crate no matter how, how hard you work at it. Um, I've seen two 650s in the crate that a 1200 takes. Hmm. That matters. That costs. Um, and it's volume that your bike is, is priced on. It's not the uh, weight of it. It's the volume that you can get it into. Um, small bikes can literally go in the back door of a small plane. Try that with a 1200. Not going to happen. Um, I've seen people dismantle, um, what was it? He had a, it was a, it was a 250 Honda CR250, or not CR250, um, the 250 dual sport Honda. I can remember the numbers. Uh, anyway, he had it down so small that it was luggage. Really, really dismantled the bike. I mean, he took the front end off, took the back end off, fender off, tank off, everything off, and it was luggage. It was oversized luggage, but it was luggage. So small is good. Small is light. Small is easy to handle. Small also when you're in a lot of countries, you're on a small bike and the shop's got small bikes just like yours. And they've got the parts and all their maintenance stuff. They've got tires that fit. They've got chains that fit. All that kind of stuff. Uh, it's easy, easy, easy to travel with a small bike in most of the world. It's Well, anywhere in the world, it, it's just so much easier than a big bike. A big bike's a pain in the neck. In a lot of countries, uh, if you want anything done, uh, it's harder to, to handle. It's more difficult in nasty traffic. Um, you get in heavy traffic in a lot of countries in the world, and everybody is expecting you to be like all the other small little motorcycles that zip around and change lanes without even blinking, and it's super easy. And they're expecting you to do that, and you don't, and they hit you because you shouldn't be there. You should be over there because you're a motorcycle. You're supposed to be more maneuverable. So that that's a real negative in heavy traffic. You're thinking you're a big motorcycle and you're not going to zip around, but they're thinking you're a motorcycle. Therefore, of course, you can zip around and you can get out of the way easily. It's a whole different mindset. So it's definitely, I think, a small motorcycle, if it works for you and it's something that you like and you're having fun and you're not expecting to be cruising down the interstate at 80 miles an hour all day long, small motorcycles are great. And small starts 650 and down. And 250s are great. I think I, I love 250s. What are the possible downsides of a small bike? <laughs> they don't cruise on the highway very well at all. <laughs> um, two real downsides, and that is, yes, they're lousy on the highway at speed, and they're not very good two up. Uh, it can be done. Um, I had a 250 Ducati, which had a tiny postage stamp for a seat and had my girlfriend on the back and we rode around and had a good time. But it's not good. Susan and doesn't I mind wouldn't that? Go very, uh, no, this was a long <laughs> time before I met Susan. <laughs> Susan likes our 1200. <laughs> I meant and, she didn't mind you taking your girlfriend out on your bike. Ah, uh, yes. Well, <laughs> she doesn't know about that one. We won't mention it. <laughs> 
should we be considering in the talking of, about small bikes, the overall weight in our worst case scenario? In other words, if you've got any bike, any adventure bike with all your gear on it, when you drop it, like you said, you dropped your bike a while ago there and, and uh, mm-hmm. it's heavy. Like it, it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's a lot of weight. Should that be a consideration? Should we be saying, well, wait a second, if I put all my gear on this bike, can I still pick it up? Or do we just have to consider that an adventure bike is heavy and maybe we're going to have to get help? Uh, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. And I think the number one thing, and when I was setting up our, our ADGS for a round the world trip, the number one thing in my mind was when this falls over, even both of us are going to have a hard time picking it up. We could do it, but it was really hard. So all my luggage was set so that it, with a couple of clicks, I could lift it all off. I could literally take the top box, both saddlebags off in about 30 seconds. That made a huge difference. Mm. You pop, click, it's all off, set it on the ground, pick the bike up. No problem. You try and pick it up fully loaded, not so good. And you're just going to hurt yourself. Where people go wrong is the first thing they do is they fall down, they get up, and they're full, all charged up with adrenaline, a little bit of shock, and, ah, and they got to pick the bike up, and they try and yank it up, and they hurt themselves badly. You just got to stop. It's not going anywhere. It can't fall any farther than it is. It's not dripping gas. Batteries don't leak anymore. Fine. Just leave it. Take a breather. Take a drink. Relax. Think about this for a sec. Am I safe? Am I off the road? Am I out of the way? Is there anybody here to help? Should I just take all the luggage off and pick it up? When I've had a rest, just take a take a breather. Oh, and by the way, take a picture while it's down. <laughs> I guess talking about the bike being down, that's another consideration for us, isn't it? Can you deal with your brand new shiny bike hitting the ground? <laughs> I guess if we're buying an adventure bike, we're putting, you know, knobby tires on it or not, and we're riding it in places that are going to be, uh, you know, difficult, we got to figure we're going to drop it. Yep. Back to life. And I think that's something that we all have to come to terms with. I'm as bad as anybody else. When I've got a new bike or a new car, I really don't want to scratch it. But, yep, it's, it's going to get scratched. You know, that's just the way it is. First time you drop it off-road, yep, you've got some scratches on it. And after that, the scratches become much less important. Um, if you're, I think it depends a lot on how often you sell your bikes. If you keep them for one or two years and then trade them in, you really, really don't want to scratch it because every scratch – literally costs you money. Um, but if you're going to keep it for 10 years or you're going to do a big around the world trip, then get used to it. It's going to get scratched. It's a fact of life. It's a motorcycle. It's a tool. It gets used. It's going to fall down. It's going to get scratched. I was under the understanding that for adventure bikes that, that they're not scratches, they're experience marks. Did I have that wrong? Yes. No, you got it exactly right. <laughs> My bike's got lots of experience marks. And probably if you're if you're worried, you're really worried about keeping the bike in top-notch shape, you may not, or maybe an adventure bike is not really something you should be looking at. Uh, no, I wouldn't agree with that. I would say that if you want to keep a shiny, shiny bike and keep it really pretty and you're only going to ride on the pavement and it's important to you that it looks really good and you're not going to ride it off-road, Venture bike's a perfectly legitimate choice for all the reasons we talked about earlier in this episode. Uh, and that's fine. Um, I don't think you have to buy an adventure bike and go out and have an adventure with it, as in go for a big trip or go riding off-road or whatever. If the bike works for you and you like the bike and it happens to be an adventure bike, fine. There's lots of 1,200 GSs out there that have never seen the dirt, and that's fine. They're the riders enjoy the bike. They love it for what it does. Um, they love how well it works for them, and they just generally like the bike. And they're absolutely shiny, gorgeous, beautiful things with not a scratch on them. And that's great. 
that works for you. Perfect. And that's one of the final things I want to talk about was the fact that these modern adventure bikes, they're really making them good. Yes, there's there's a trade-off between the street and the off-road, but these modern bikes, they're getting like the bike you're riding, you know, can be great off-road and fantastic on the highway. Like these things do a lot of things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the range you can get that you can do with a modern bike. Um, I mean, I was riding my 1200 GSA in some pretty gnarly situations where... I wouldn't take an old street bike <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, there's deep, deep ruts and nasty rocks and crashed the skid pan a number of times. Um, and it was okay. It did that shockingly well. And this friend of mine that I was riding with on a DR650, we've literally been riding together since, uh, well, <clears throat> it's over 50 years we've been riding together. And he's cool. on his DR and he's not a 1200 GS fan. He thought... You know, he, he generally just gives me a bad time generally about how complex it is and how big it is and how heavy it is and blah, 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 blah. But by the end of five days of riding in the woods, um, he was, you know, you know, that thing, it's a lot better than I thought it was <laughs> as he tries to catch me. <laughs> The final, he was quite impressed. The so. final thing that we, uh, we we talked about before was uh, fitting dual purpose tires or, or fitting a, a little bit more aggressive tire to any bike. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tires can make a huge difference in how well the bike works. I think where you have to be careful is that you get the right tire for the job, uh, as always. And, you know, um, if you put a knobby tire on a full-on street bike, and you can do it, and people do it, it's amazing how well it can work off-road, so long as you're not trying to go fast. I mean, you get a guy who's got a KTM 450 EXC or something, and he looks at you on your street bike with knobbies and it's all he can do to kill himself himself from killing himself laughing. Yeah, but you're thinking of a different speed. You're thinking about getting there. And I think adventure travelers always have to have in mind that their number one focus is getting there in one piece, intact, shiny side up. Great. Whereas the guy on the dual sport or a, a proper dirt bike, he's thinking about how much fun he can have and how fast he can go. It's a very different mindset. So putting on the right tires to make it easier for you to get there makes complete sense to me. I have no issues with it. In fact, I recommend it. Grant, thanks. Great tips. You're welcome. Happy to be here. I hope that helps a few of the people out there. And that was Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. You can find out more about Horizons Unlimited. Matter of fact, you can find tons of information there. www.horizonsunlimited.com. Stick around. we got more coming up right after this. Adventure Rider Radio is also supported by Aerostitch. Aerostitch.com forward slash ARR is a website. The forward slash ARR is important because it lets them know you came from here, but it also gets you 10% off your next purchase or free shipping if you're an existing customer. So make sure you drop by. Now, if you haven't already got their catalog, I really strongly recommend that you grab their catalog because here it is. In the Northern Hemisphere, those of us in the North here, we're going to experience winter right now, unfortunately for us motorcyclists. So if you go to the Aerostitch catalog, you will find they have a plethora of heated gear as well as some beautiful leather gloves. Um, they're elk skin gloves. So they've, they've got a, a bunch of different versions. So if you're thinking of riding in the cooler weather, you definitely want to look at what Aerostitch has to offer. It is a rider-driven company. Uh, the company is set up by motorcyclists and operated by motorcyclists. 
and they do winter riding. So they really know cold weather riding. And, and I know they do winter riding because if you look at their website, you'll see they've got a, a blog that from last year, they were riding an electric motorcycle through the depths of winter with snow and ice and all the other stuff. Anyway, you'll have to go by the website to see that. www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Now, we also asked Chris Scott, who is the author of the Adventure Motorcycling Handbook, for his input on this segment. And he said that the one thing he would add is his minimalist approach, just enough to get the job done. He says in what he refers to as the Adventure Motorcycle Zone, or AMZ, there's a new phrase coined right there. In the Adventure Motorcycle Zone, which he describes as developing countries, that he can't see a need for more than 60 horsepower, and he prefers a bike that weighs less than 200 kilograms fully loaded. It's not a domestic highway, and once you get into the AMZ zone, that will all make sense, he says. So in other words, are you buying the bike for travel in developed countries, staying near home? Um, Are you into world travel, into developing countries, or is it a mix of both? All factors that should help shape your decision on what bikes you should be looking at. And by the way, if you are traveling with your motorcycle, I would highly recommend picking up Chris's book, The Adventure Motorcycling Handbook. Well, to add a few more tips and throw in a little more thought process to searching for your adventure bike, we spoke with Lawrence Hacking. Lawrence Hacking is an accomplished moto journalist that spent, uh, I guess, the better part of his life living and breathing motorcycles. Starting back in, in 1971, he's raced around the world, including representing Canada at the International Six Days Enduro six times, finishing all those times. He's an event organizer, including his own event, the Lawrence Hacking Overland Adventure Rally, which is staged in Ontario, Canada. I sat down with Lawrence to chat about choosing an adventure bike, and one of the first points he made was to seriously consider the intended use. I guess the first thing you've got to do is decide, you know, and it's not easy, but decide exactly how you're going to use the bike and where and what conditions, and then buy the appropriate bike for that type of use. And a pragmatic approach is not necessarily the only consideration. No, there's nothing wrong with buying a bike just because, as long as you understand what you're getting into. Yeah, I'm all about (laughs) buying stuff based on how they sound or how they look or, you know, just what Steve McQueen wrote. (laughs) So that's, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Like you don't have to be practical on any means. Motorcycles aren't a rational thing. I mean, if you wanted to drive a minivan and go back and forth to work, that's pretty good. (laughs) It's a very practical adventure car. You know, you can sleep in it and, you know, it's reliable and you can get anywhere too. So yeah, it's kind of a, it's a very personal choice. So all I can do is advise people uh, based on how I personally choose a motorcycle. An adventure bike for running around town, well, getting groceries, there's nothing wrong with that. It does it well. I think that uh, day-to-day use, um, you know, adventure bikes are great for for running around town and commuting and stuff. I have friends that ride around their adventure bike in Toronto and use it to zip around traffic because they've got a nice riding position and they're maneuverable and, and they're quick. The word adventure is subjective. And the word alone doesn't dictate what bike you need. I think the term adventure is something very personal and it's individual. I mean, everybody's you know, concept of adventure is different. Sometimes you, uh, if you ride a, 
you know, a big GS to a Holiday Inn and check in with your credit card, that's someone's adventure. And, you know, another adventure is riding, you know, a bike in the up to the Arctic Circle and, and sleeping in a tent with grizzly bears. So there's it's pretty, pretty big parameters there. But when it comes to choosing the size of your adventure bike, which model you're going to go for, as far as Lawrence is concerned, he doesn't see the need for a bike over, say, 1,000 cc. I honestly don't think you need 150 horsepower in an adventure bike because I don't, I don't, you know, I don't see the use. I know there's all the different mapping and choices and stuff like that, but I'm an old school guy. So I like to use the clutch and, and, uh, you know, have it a little bit more simple, especially if, you know, say you do get into, um, you know, it's not that for me, you know, I kind of dream about riding across Asia to Europe. And, you know, there's a lot of water crossings in Mongolia and places like that. So I'd like to keep it simple and keep the electronics to a, at least a minimum that if you did, say, drop it in a river, it would that wouldn't be the end of your trip and you wouldn't have to get airlifted out or something like that. The adventure segment of the motorcycle industry is the fastest growing area for motorcycle sales. And because of it, there's many choices out there, more choices than ever before when it comes to adventure motorcycles. Lawrence suggests doing some test riding. I think you have to try a bunch of stuff and then okay, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, and, um, you know, this is my intended use. There's a lot to do with what your friends do, too. You know, it's a very social thing as well. I mean, if you have a bunch of riding buddies that ride about the same pace and the same bike, it's pretty reasonable to assume that you should buy the same similar bike and, and ride, you know, then everybody's kind of in the same boat and, and uh, no one's holding anybody else up and things like that. We also talked about small displacement adventure bikes, and Lawrence is definitely a fan. Oh, yeah. You know, I just rode the Fundy Rally out in uh, New Brunswick there a few weeks ago, and I rode a 250 CRF 250L, uh, 400 kilometers in a day. We rode Sweep with Clinton Smout and uh, Adam Rush and uh, Warren Milner, and we just volunteered to ride at the back and solve problems. And we solved a few little problems. I spent all day on, the, on this little 250, and it was fun. It, it ripped down the highway when it needed to and um, was relatively comfortable. There was no. It was actually a pretty fun day. It was a really good day to ride. It's a great event, and um, and uh, you know it was perfectly suited to those tight little roads and little gravel roads and maneuverable. And you know, I didn't really didn't really miss anything. It was you know choosing the right bike for the day and and things. Was, it was good. There was no problem whatsoever. So yeah, I'm, I'm a. I've always kind of been a smaller bike guy. Um, and, uh, you know, I like the fact that in, on dirt bikes, for example, uh, if you remove excessive power out of the, out of the equation, it, um, you know, you kind of have to compensate for having less power by, you know, diving deeper, deeper into the corners or, um, you know, having a little bit, you know, you know, if you need power to get up a hill, you have to use a little bit different technique and, and that's a bit more of a challenge and stuff. So. It's actually, um, and I find them less fatiguing because, um, say, in a, I rode an enduro just last weekend in Japan, and I rode a T, uh, an FE 250 Husqvarna, which was a great choice for the bike. I couldn't imagine wanting any more power. Basically, uh, you know, if you, people are on 450s, well, you know, it accelerates harder, so it pulls your arms out of the socket accelerating, and then you have to do a huge push-up braking into the corner, and, you know, it's that's a huge factor when you know you've kind of got a limited amount of energy to to spend on it in a day's enduro and um the 250 was was a really good choice so yeah little bikes are, are great 
what about single versus twin? Why would I want a single? Why would I want a twin, be it a V or a parallel? Yeah, good, good question. You know, well, all the singles are going to be, I think the 690 or 701 Husky is probably the biggest single around, I guess, that I can think of anyways. So, you know, you've got, um, it's going to be a smaller, lighter, more maneuverable, more dirt bike-esque type of motorcycle. Um, and uh, I think the twins are a little bit smoother, you know, a little nicer um, little nicer uh, and long distances. So the difference between the two, though, I mean, is it, is it weight? I mean, there's, there's some extra parts in there, but it doesn't seem like all that much. Yeah, it would be. Well, all, this, all the twins that I know over triples are, are definitely heavier bikes, yeah. You've got more re- reciprocating mass in the engine, a lot more things spinning around, a lot more complex, a um, little bit bulkier, too. The other thing to note with um, seat height is, you know, you can have a... A taller, you'll see on the Husqvarna, for example, the seat's quite narrow and it's quite tall, but because your legs aren't spread apart, you can actually reach the ground. So, but the seat isn't that supportive, you know, or comfortable for long, long, all day in the the saddle. Um, So if you have a wider, broader seat, it's more comfortable, but then your legs are spread apart and it effectively reduces, you know, your ability to touch the ground. So you have to be, just try every motorcycle and, and think about the seat and again, think about the use. If you're, if you're going to be sitting on that seat for a long time, you want a really nice, comfortable one. And seats are very, very personal. You know, there's some nice wide seats that don't fit me and some that do and some really narrow seats that are comfortable, but, you know, they're not uh, something you want to sit in all, sit on or in all day, you know. You can find out more about Lawrence Hacking by visiting his website, www.overlandadventurerally.com. And that link will be in our show notes. Horizons Unlimited has been holding an annual photo contest since 2005. It's grown every year, and this year's contest had over 650 entries from travelers all over the world. And with so many fantastic entries, there is so many good photographs in there. It's really hard to choose which photos to use for the calendar. So for the past few years, we've asked for help from our worldwide user community. We narrow down the field. And trust me, that takes a lot of winnowing and a lot of work. And we then let folks vote for their favorite photos on the hub, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So it's good fun. Lots of photos get out there and lots of comments about them. And the quality is just we're always amazed at how good they are. Uh, we believe the Horizons Unlimited calendar is a true community project by the worldwide adventure travel community and it helping inspire other travelers. And we also share the proceeds of the sales with the 13 winning photographers. Touratech is our global sponsor and they contribute some great prizes to this year's contest, such as a Touratech Companero riding suit and a Touratech Aventuro mod helmet. So some really big prizes for first and second place. And we're very proud of the quality of the calendar. Touratech helps us get it printed in Germany. It's absolutely spectacular quality. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. And we get comments like, the only downside is that I see a new place I want to visit each month. And what somebody say, I look forward to the HU calendar and put it on the wall of my office or shop every year. The photographs always inspire me and help me remember my own travels and to think where I might point my own bike next. So the calendar is on sale now. It's selling fast. And you can find it in the Horizons Unlimited store, or you can also get it on Amazon. 
USA, Canada, UK, and the Aussies can buy it through Overlander Adventure Equipment in Perth or online and wherever you find it, it makes a great Christmas gift. And go figure, we already have our Christmas gift because we have that calendar on the wall now just waiting to flip our pages, and it's really, really nice. Uh, I was going to have Grant on here to talk about the calendar, but he read me that piece. I thought it was so perfect. I just throw it in just like that. Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, the Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com www.cyclepump.com Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and all the work she does behind the scenes. And if you'd like to see, sort of like get a glimpse of what behind the scenes looks like, um, we should have by now, by the time you're listening to this, a picture up of just the, the work desk here while we we're preparing this show. And it sort of gives you an idea when you see all this paperwork and everything laying around, what, what sort of is involved in putting this thing together. Anyway, drop by our Facebook page, check that out. And don't forget to like the page if you haven't already. And hey, if you can do it, drop by our website and click on the donate button. We've designed the show on a model of some advertising and some donations to help make it all work. And uh, we'd really appreciate if you could drop by and, and send us a donation if you can do it. And uh, we'll also, we have little gifts we send back uh, depending on how much you donate. So drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com and click on the donate button. Hey, and thank you, the listener. We appreciate you coming by and listening to this show. Don't forget, you can drop by our website and listen to all the shows for free. They're all there. Enjoy. Listen to them. There's tons of information there and a lot of people, a lot of great people we've had on this show. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. No excuses. Get out there and ride your bike. Especially if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, winter's coming. I hate saying that. It just makes me think of snowflakes and rain here on the coast. See you next week. Hi, this is Lois Price of Lois on the Loose, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 